Um, this is part two of the story of Samson. We did part one last week. If you missed it, you can go uh, to YouTube and you can just look up Gateway Alliance Church and you will be able to find it. Uh, these three sermons are connected, so it's going to be better if you uh, have all of them and so you can go back and watch. Uh, so please do that if you haven't seen it. Because last week, my name's Dan Taylor. I'm the campus pastor here, by the way, um, just in case anyone didn't know. Hi. Um, but uh, if uh, last week we met Samson, and, and, and I'm sorry if this is news to some of you, but the story of Samson, as it's written in the book of Judges, isn't the story of a superhero. Uh, it ends up being the story of a really lost boy at the beginning, a boy who was God-gifted with incredible strength, incredible capabilities. God gave him a purpose that he would free his people, that he would lead his people against their oppressors. And, and, and Samson wasn't given any direction by anyone in his life. And he didn't know the Lord, and he didn't know his law, and he, and he lost his way because he wasn't told who he was or why he was here. And that ended up being dangerous for everyone. And at the end of last week, we saw that the very last scene that, we're, that, 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 that Samson was involved in uh, he lost a bet at his wedding to 30 guys. Uh, so because he lost that bet, he went to the town of Ashkelon. He killed 30 men there, stole their clothes and their armor to pay off his debt on the bet that he had lost. And then he went home not finishing out his wedding. Okay, so that's where we're going to pick up the story this week, some months later. But I want us to start off with a, with a little uh, slide first because I want us to start... I, can we, yeah, can we go to the next one? Yeah, we're going to start here. Um, so, And we're going to start here because I want us, this is kind of a helpful thing that I think to, uh, to, to, to kind of place the character of Samson on us. So we have one scale at the top. This is Jahari window, if anyone's familiar with it. It's just got two spectrums, right? So our first spectrum is good versus evil, right? So there's, we understand that. You can be on a spectrum of like evil and good, and then wise and foolish, right? So... As we saw a couple of weeks ago in the story of Ruth, Naomi, both good and wise, right? Naomi was a good person. She was wise. She knew the law, knew how to work that system, and, and Naomi was good and wise, right? Um, Joseph, Joseph, who was sold by his brothers into Egypt, right? Good and wise. God blessed him with wisdom. He was able to lead Egypt through a famine and all of this kind of stuff. Good and wise. Moses, both good and wise, and also good and foolish often, right? Moses kind of drifts into God told, so God, Moses is leading the people of God. Uh, God says to him, hey, they need water. Talk to this rock, and water will come out of the rock. Moses gets mad, hits the rock. Water comes out of the rock, right? That's foolishness. He didn't do what God told him to do, and he let his anger take over for him, right? So he's foolish. Good and foolish, most of the disciples, most of the time. Um, I like if you read the Gospels, there are times like like there most of the time they are good and kind of slow, and and occasionally they drift over into evil and foolish, right? Like there's you know James and John being like, oh mom, get, mom, can you go ask him if we can sit on the side like at the side of him when he comes into the kingdom, right? That's a little bit well, shady at the very least, right? 
but they live in kind of this foolish area most of the time. And then we do have some characters in the Bible that are both evil and foolish, right? And those are kind of the most fun, right? We see the seven sons of Sceva, and if you're not familiar with the story, it's a great story in the book of Acts. There are these guys who used to go, there were these guys uh, in the book of Acts that would cast out demons and stuff like that. And, and they heard that Paul was casting out na- demons in the name of Jesus, so they were like, let's get onto this racket. And they started casting out demons in the name of Jesus as well. And they went to cast out this demon, and, uh, and the demon says to them, uh, he, they say, we cast you out in the name of Jesus. And, and the demon says, like, Jesus I know, Paul I've heard of, uh, I don't know anything about you guys. And then the demon beats the crap out of them, steals all of their clothes, and they run away naked. Right, that is very... Very fun story, but they are living in this, like, evil and foolish place, right? And then we also, the most dangerous people of all are people who are wise and evil, right? We see Jezebel was wise and evil. She was deliberately turning the hearts of the people away from God, Yahweh, into the hands of idols. And unfortunately, she was married to someone who was evil and foolish in Ahab, right? So we have this, and then, you know, we're, you, you get it by now, right? Oh, yeah, and David, 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 oh, boy. Oh, David. Um, David does have moments when he drifts over to evil, but, like, he definitely is, like, riding this wise, foolish line the entire time, okay? So... I want us, as we kind of look at the rest of the story, to think about where Samson fits on this scale, right? Um, because I've told you that there are parts of this story where Samson is a monster, but there's other parts where he's a lost boy, right? And we need to treat those things very, very differently, okay? So again, the end of the story last time, in the middle of his wedding, Samson loses a bet, He leaves his wedding, goes and murders 30 guys to pay off his debt, and then leaves in the middle of his wedding. So if we go back to the last slide, um, burning with anger, he returned to his father's home, and Samson's wife was given to one of his companions who had attended him at the feast. Okay, so that's the end of that part of the story. So we can go two ahead. That's where we're at. So later on, at the time of the wheat harvest, now there's some debate among scholars about how long this is. There's some people that want to give Samson some credit and say it was just a couple of days later, and they'll translate it as saying uh, some days later. I think that those people are wrong, um, simply because agricultural societies are pretty much the same all over the world. And if you say that, like, at the time of harvest, you generally mean something like six to at least a month to six weeks away, right, at the very least. You don't measure something by the harvest if it's like next Wednesday, right? That's not the way that things work. So sometime later, so we've waited probably a period of a couple of months. Wheat harvest in ancient Israel was in the spring, around May. So uh, about that time, Samson took a young goat and went to visit his wife. He said, I'm going to my wife's room, but his father would not let him go in. Okay, so we're... Most of us adults here, those of us who know what's going on, understand what's going on in this story, right? We're not, prudishness is not holiness, okay? So he is going and he is trying to find something. And her father would not let him go in. He, was so, he says, I was so sure that you hated her that I gave her to your companion. Isn't her younger sister more attractive? Take her instead. Okay. There's a lot happening in this moment, right? 
But this reminds us again of Samson as a lost boy who's never been told who he is or why he's here. In this moment, the things that Samson wants are all good, right? At this moment, Samson wants companionship and intimacy and even sexuality. And all of those are good things. But he's going about it in an entirely wrong way, right? He's been gone for at least a month, if not six weeks. He left in a huff after murdering 30 people without consummating his marriage. And his father-in-law gave his wife to another person. I'm not defending the father-in-law, right? However, we can see that Samson is operating right now in at least this on the foolish half of our square. And I would say that he's good and foolish right now because the things that he's longing for are good. But he doesn't know how to get them and he doesn't know how to ask for them. And we're going to see quickly how this results in problems. I mean, it was because Samson said to them, this time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. This is another translation issue. A lot of your Bibles are going to translate this as, as I have a right, okay? So, little aside. If you see the word right anywhere in the Bible, you should question it. Simply because the idea of human rights as we understand them didn't really occur in history until right about, about the 1500s, okay? Prior to the French Revolution. And that doesn't mean that I disagree with the concept of human rights. I do think that we should treat people well and that, we should, and that people have an inherent dignity as image bearers of God and as such should be treated in such a way. I disagree with none of the issues of human rights. However, in the ancient world, it wouldn't have been understood as I have rights. It would have been understood as I have responsibilities. You understand how the switch is made there? And I wonder if that might be a better way for us to approach it. Rather than each of us individually out there defending our rights, I think what Christianity calls us to is to understand that we have responsibilities to other image bearers of God. Right? So every human being that you encounter has been made in God's image and is imbued with God's favor and dignity, and he loves them deeply, so much so that he died for them and is forgiving them every bit as much as he died for and is forgiving you, right? So we have a responsibility to other people. So anytime you see the word right, uh, get a little curious. And when we get a little curious, we learn that in Hebrew, if we can go to the next one, actually what translates is, this time I will remain blameless when I get even with the Philistines. That's a quite a different statement, isn't it? So Samson looks for something good and then doesn't get it, and now he's angry. And now he's going to get back at everyone. And I'm glad, so, and, 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 and it's so interesting for us to be in this story about an angry young man who wants something but doesn't know how to get it in a way that is beneficial to him or to the people around him and then lashes out at everyone. I'm glad that this happened in the ancient world and our world now is completely different and we don't have to deal with such things anymore. Right? It's the same story. You know this person. You know him. We know him. 
We've seen him online. We're related to him. We've met him. We've seen somebody who feels entitled to something, like something that they want has been stolen from them. And when they don't get it, when they ask for it badly, or when they're not equipped for it, they, they feel like something's been taken for it from them, and now they're angry. We need to start addressing this. And we see this in Samson. It's the same impulse. So he goes to get even with the, with the Philistines. So, and, and, and remember, he's good and foolish until this point. I will remain blameless even when I get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. So he went out and caught 300 foxes and tied them tail to tail in pairs. He then fastened a torch to every pair of tails, lit the torches, and let the foxes loose in the standing grain of the Philistines. He burned up the shocks and standing grains together with the vineyard and the olive groves. Now, this is something that we have to address. Objectively, that is awesome. There is no other way to say it. And we see how capable Samson was when he put his mind to something, right? He had to catch 300 foxes. That means he had to build a pen, right? You can't carry around 300 foxes at once. He had to catch foxes and put them in a pen and then go and get more foxes. Foxes are not easy to catch. He's been gifted with superhuman strength, not superhuman speed. He has to figure out how to do this. And then, objectively, he could have just been like, I'm going to tie, I'm going to set all of their tails on fire and set them out individually. He doesn't do that. He ties them in pairs, so they're even running more erratically and confusedly. Objectively, this is definitely in the evil and wise stage of Samson's growth, right? And we see that this is what Samson is capable of. Imagine if he used these powers for good, right? Imagine if someone had just told him who he was and why he was here, and now he could use all of this brilliance and strategy to actually get something done and accomplished, but instead, He's operating out of his anger. He's operating out of his hurt. He's operating out of, out of everything that is broken inside him, and it causes damage to everyone around him. Because this destroys the crops of the Philistines. And this is going to starve many, many people. Right? So we can understand how this just continues the cycle of violence that we operate in. Okay? So when the Philistines asked who did this, they were told Samson, the Timnite's son-in-law, because his wife was given to his companion. So the Philistines went up and burned her and her father to death. There are no good guys in this story. Okay? There are almost no good guys in the book of Judges, except where, like, especially going on from here. But we see how participating in a cycle of violence breeds more violence. Returning wrong for wrong creates a greater cycle of wrong. And Samson's father-in-law and his wife get sucked into this. So Samson then goes and he continues to fight them. He, he seems to launch what are kind of terrorist attacks against them. It's a little bit confusing in the Hebrew language because what it says is that he gave them a strong blow against the hip and the knee. But what we're, I think what we're supposed to understand from that um, 
in the context is that he was kind of like he was striking them all over the place. He was making these attacks against them and, and, and causing a lot of damage to the Philistines um, and, and, and murdering and killing a lot of people. And out of this, the Philistines respond and they go and they camped in Judah, spreading out near Lehi. Okay? So in response to these solo terrorist attacks by Samson, the people of uh, the Philistines, these people gather their army and they're just like, we're going to go fight your people then. We can't find you. We're going to destroy everyone. And quite wisely and rightly, after the raid, the, the people of Judah go out and they say to the, to the Philistines, why have you come to fight us? And they said, we have come to take Samson prisoner to do as he did to us, right? And the Philistines are just saying that we are going to participate in the cycle of violence. That is what we are here to do. We have been attacked. We attacked. This is the routine and the dance that we're all in. You know what to do. I, we, we know what to do. This is how we operate. So the people of Judah, they don't want anything to do with us. They're scared of the Philistines, and they're certainly also scared of Samson because he doesn't seem to be helping anyone but himself. And they go, and they see him, and they find him in the caves at En Gedi, and they're just like, hey, you know, the Philistines want you, and we've come to take you prisoner and give you to them. And then uh, Sam Samson said, okay, I'll come with you and not fight against you guys if you promise not to kill me yourselves and just hand me over for the Philistines. And they agree to do it. So... They bound him up in two new ropes and led him up from the rock. And as he approached Lehi, the Philistines came towards him shouting. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax, and his bindings dropped from his hands. Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. And this is very impressive. It is. But I'd like us to st step back for a moment, and, and Spencer clued me into this a couple of weeks ago, and I've been living in this moment for a while. If you're killing a thousand men, this isn't like an action movie. They're not gathered in the circle of idiots and like attacking you one at a time, right? Like they do in all those old action movies. They are swarming him at first, and he kills many of them with a blunt instrument. 50, 60, 70, 100. At some point in that number, they stop swarming. At some point, given human nature, they start to see how many of their brothers and cousins and friends have fallen already at the hand of Samson. And some of them, in tens and twenties, start to run. And Samson doesn't let those men who are not attacking him go. Samson chases them. Because that is the only way that you can kill 1,000 people with the jawbone of a donkey. Is if some of those people you chase down while they're running away and you attack them while they're trying to get away from you. So which quadrant is Samson in now? Where is Samson now? 
And this is important for us to think about. Because as much as last week I talked about Samson being a lost boy, and he is a lost boy, no one told him who he was or why he was here. At some point, you become an adult. And you begin to take responsibility for your own actions. And there is a major difference between being a lost child and remaining a lost adult. And those of us who have been harmed, who have been traumatized, who have had gaps in our parenting, we can and we ought to lay blame where it is appropriate. But also, at some point, we start participating in the cycle that we were given. And we choose, out of our hurt and out of our pain, to do to others what had been done to us. And I would invite us to say that we should stop that. Because what God has called us to is healing. What God has called us to is freedom. What God has called us to is to not continue this cycle of violence. And the reality is it feels very far away from us because almost no one in this room is going to, almost, almost no one in this room is going to kill a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey, right? But I have, in my fear and in my anger in my other days, lashed out verbally against people who received a fire hose of anger that they were not in any way expecting or responding to. They struck a match and all of a sudden a bonfire started. And that bonfire was in me and I allowed it to burn. And in doing that, I participated in the cycle of violence and anger and destruction and put that on somebody else. And the challenge that we have been given in Jesus is to stop. And the equipping that we have been given in Jesus is to stop. So we see Samson at this point fully residing in that evil place. And in fact, this continues. And to make it worse, he writes a poem. And it is, it is weirdly gross and funny because this is where Samson transitions into a supervillain. Because the text says in English, with a donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys of them. And that's, that's one way of, of translating that. It's, it's, it's one way of trying, there's a word play in it. So in Hebrew, the word for, for donkey is, is hamar, okay? And then the word for heaps or piles is hamer. So he says, basically, with a heap of bone, I've made heaps and heaps of bodies. With a heap of bone, I killed a thousand men. And the reality is, if you start writing witty wordplay jokes about killing a thousand people, 
you are 100% and definitely residing in the evil and wise place. And as much as Samson was a lost boy, he has fully chosen to remain a lost adult. Because he had every opportunity to learn, every opportunity to choose a different path, every opportunity to say, oh, my wife has been given to another person, I need to maybe figure out relationships in a different way. How can I go about that, right? He had the opportunity when his father-in-law and wife were, were burned at the stake to say, this has gone too far. I need to stop this. He had every opportunity to just allow and be handed over to the Philistines and just end the cycle of violence there himself, but he chose something else, right? And now he makes a poem about it, and we see him fully residing in this place of wise and evil, firmly embracing it with all he is. And then, as this part of the story ends, Samson led Israel for 20 years. And as much as that sounds like a victory, yay, the Philistines are no longer in charge of us, do we honestly think it's better to be led by Samson? Do we honestly believe that it's better to be led by someone living fully and completely in that wise and evil quadrant? Because Samson is unrepentant, He's unchanging, and he is fully embraced being the lost adult that he is. Now, Samson's story is going to change, and it's going to change next week. But the good news for us is that we do not have to repeat Samson's errors. Because what we have been taught that Samson was not is forgiveness. And if we are wondering what stops the cycle of violence, it's forgiveness. Jesus said, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your neighbor. Do good to those who hate you. And Jesus says that in teaching, and it flips the world on its head. Because when we actually take that seriously, to love, to do good to those who hate us, to return blessing where we have gotten cursing, to, to forgive where we have been wronged rather than ricocheting our wrong off the person who harmed us and more likely off of everyone that we love. When we choose not to do that, but instead to forgive, we break that cycle that the world and the enemy and that our own DNA want us to live in of just the spiral of violence upon violence upon violence that ends up with everybody living in that wise and evil quadrant. Because to the world, forgiveness looks good and foolish. And there's an aspect where it is. It is. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel proper. It doesn't feel just. It feels like I should get back at the people who wronged me because they hurt me. And, and who is going to make that right? And what we have been given over and over again is Jesus saying, I will make it right. 
And so there are people in this room who are participating in a cycle of anger and violence. There's in a room this size, statistically, there are people who in their homes and in their families are participating in a cycle, cycle of violence, both physically, emotionally, psychologically. And what I would say to you, if you are, if you are currently living with someone who is dangerous, it's okay to get to a safe place. You do not deserve this. It is not right. It is not proper. And it is not a violation of any vows that you have taken to remove yourself from a dangerous place and to put yourself in a safe place. Okay? But second of all, if you are the person who out of your hurt and out of your pain is perpetuating a cycle of violence, I want you to stop. And I want you to know that we recognize the lost child in there. We recognize the hurt person. We recognize that. But the damage that is continuing to be done to the people around you and to yourself is not okay. And you need to stop. And the only way for you to stop is to do the very courageous thing of sharing it with somebody out loud. So that could be one of us on staff, it could be a friend, it could be whatever. But you need to stop, and you need to get help, and you need to forgive, okay? And I know I'm not asking for something easy, but this is what Jesus has called us to as his followers, and it's also the thing that will set us free. It's interesting. So. One of the disciples asks Jesus in Matthew 18, he says, he says uh, how many times should I forgive my brother when he's wronged me? Like seven times? Seven seems a lot, right? Seven's a lot. Good number. And Jesus says to him, I say to you, don't forgive him seven times, but I forgive him 70 times seven times. Now, <laughs> I was in Bible college long enough that I heard somebody then say, so I got to forgive 490 times, right? No. Um... When Jesus says that, he's saying forgiveness is not about math. Forgiveness is about who you are as a person. And forgiveness is absorbing the blows and the hurt and the curses and the pain and absorbing that and choosing not to give it to other people. Okay? And we do that infinite numbers of times. Now that doesn't preclude like, wait a minute, you stole all my money last week. I'm not going to let you steal all my money this week. That's a boundary. That's fine. That's not the same as, but forgiveness is like, but I'm not going to lash out back at you. And you might be asked, saying to yourself, but I don't have that resource of forgiveness in me. Like, you don't know what I went through, so how dare you ask me to forgive because I don't have nearly enough forgiveness to give that to someone. I never got forgiveness, all I got was anger, so that's the only well that I have to draw from. I don't have any forgiveness to give back to you. And what I would say to you is I get that. We don't draw from our own well of forgiveness, we draw from Jesus' well of forgiveness. And I can guarantee you, with every fiber of my being, 
when you deliberately choose and ask Jesus, can you give me forgiveness to give to this other person? He does it. He does it. He does it. And I wish I could tell you a formula or I wish I could tell you a pathway and I wish I could even tell you that it made it stop hurting. It doesn't make it stop hurting, but what it does is it stops you from hurting other people that you love. So the challenge for us this week is to see Samson's story and mourn. Because we know that that is where we have and could go if we do not continually address what is inside us. And at this moment, choose that when we are wronged, when we feel that anger bubbling up inside us, when we feel that thing inside us that wants us to lash out with a harsh word, to lash out with a violent action, to lash out with something snide and dismissive or passive aggressive, to instead say, I'm going to, Jesus, give me forgiveness from your will. Because that's the only way I'm not going to hurt the people around me. And I want to stop. I desperately, desperately want to stop. But I need your forgiveness. I need your grace. I need who you are to pour out on this thing because I don't have enough of it on my own. And I can promise you that he's going to do that. Let's pray. God. We are so often foolish. We're foolish about our desires. We're foolish about our angers. We're foolish about our hurts. We're foolish about our actions. And we need you to make us wise. Because we, we don't want to hurt each other anymore, God. We don't want to continue the cycle of violence and anger and hurt that we've been a part of till now. So we would ask that your Holy Spirit would change our minds. And when we feel that instinct to lash out, that we would instead turn to you and ask for your forgiveness. And we need you to do that, God. Because that's the only way that we're going to be safe for the people around us and that we're going to live lives worthy of your calling. But remind us again, God, that your forgiveness is limitless and that it overflows all of our hurts and all of our pain. And it allows us to truly be holy, not because we have acted in a holy way, but because you have made us holy because of who you are. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus.